Looking Back in Time, the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltot, Sport and Media. Good evening, you're very welcome along to The History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan and thanks for joining me for episode 8 of the series, Where or oh Where is the Time Going at All? Coming up on this evening's show, the history and restoration of Deer Park Mill in Mullendavat, County Kilkenny. We'll be hearing from John Dunphy, who carried out the restoration works, and who is a member of the famous Dunphy family, which has seen no less than five generations be at the helm of the mill throughout the years. Also on the show, writer, director and theatre producer Gillian Gratton on her latest radio play, which will be broadcast here on KCLR in the coming weeks. The Countess tells the story of the life and times of Lady Desert. We'll be hearing how the play came together and the research that Gillian undertook in preparation for the piece. And finally, in the first of two parts, Thomastown man Joe Doyle tells us about the history of Thompel Tagon, a historic medieval graveyard in Grenon. As well as telling us a bit more about its history, Joe will also be explaining the historical significance of the inscriptions written on the nine headstones that remain in the graveyard. So all of that, plus plenty more besides over the course of the next hour, I do hope that you can stay with me. As always, I love your thoughts and interaction throughout the programme, so please do get in touch. You can text me on the dinnersready.e sponsored KCLR text and WhatsApp line on 083 306 9696 or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com. Our webpage and podcast for Season 2 of the programme is up and running. You can access it at kclr96fm.com slash the hyphen history hyphen show so you can listen back to the programme there or on the KCLR app and this week's show will be uploaded there later this evening if you want to have another listen. But first this evening we're setting our sights on South County Kilkenny and the parish of Mullinavat. The name Mullinavat was derived from the Irish Mullin on Vata, which roughly translates as Mill at the Stick, which referred to a stick used to cross over the river adjacent to an old mill at the southern side of the village. In the 1800s, there were five mills in Mullinavat, and one of them was Deer Park Mills, situated on the River Blackwater, about one mile south of the village. Today, thanks to a lot of hard work and dedication, this mill still operates following restoration works. We're going to hear more now about the history of the mill and that restoration from Mullinavat native John Dunphy. John is from Deer Park and he's one of three brothers who are great-grandchildren of the first Dunphy man who would have come to Deer Park Mill in 1877. The mill has been in the Dunphy family for at least five generations and thanks to the efforts of John and his family, that tradition looks set to continue. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. At the east end of town, at the foot of the hill, there's a chimney so tall, it says Belfast Mill. But there's no smoke at all, coming out of the stack, for the mill has shut down, and it's never coming back. 
And the only tune I hear is the sound of the wind As she blows through the town We've unspin, we've unspin John, can you give us an overview of the history of Deer Park Mill? I suppose from a historical perspective, our first records of the mill uh, go back to 1833 in the Tide Plotments when a man called Patrick Hayes was the miller. He was the owner of the mill at that time. Since then, the mill worked continuously up to around 1956, uh, powered by water wheel, and it became, I suppose, like a lot of the mills had run its course at that stage because uh, the electricity mills had come in in the creameries mainly and farmers tended to go to the creameries to have their corn ground. So the mill mill wheel was left to, it was a timber mill wheel, so it, it, over years it rottened and we had always been talking about getting it back up and running. And I suppose we got more serious about it in the last year or two and we actually got the mill wheel reinstated uh, remade again and it was installed in the mill in on the 29th of June this year so I suppose from a historical perspective it, it's a big undertaking just going back about the, the history of the mill the first records we have of the mill is in the tide allotments in 1833 as I said when Patrick Hayes was the miller it was in the Griffiths valuation in 1850 and there's records there in the mills and millers of Ireland uh, which was a log of every mill and miller in the country which was done in 1850. And Patrick Hayes was the miller at that stage. It is also on the first um, Ordnance Survey map, which was done of the area in 1839 and listed on the Ordnance Survey map. The surveyors were uh, Major Waters and Lieutenant Wynn. So that was in 1839. So we know that the mill is there almost 200 years and maybe some years before that. In 1850, from the Mills and Mills of Ireland uh, record, there was 5,000 mills. And an industrial archaeologist called Fred Hammond was commissioned by the Kilkenny County Council to do a study of architectural buildings and structures in Kilkenny in 1990. Uh, So he surveyed such things as mills, bridges, um, quarries, mines, probably railways, that type of thing. So he surveyed 129 mills. Out of out of 131 that had been listed previously, and at that in his survey he found only eight mills were in good repair with the full machinery complement. So our mill had all the internal machinery at that time, but the wheel was missing. So I suppose hopefully all the other eight have survived, and now with our wheel having got back going again, there's nine mills with all the machinery. So that's a long ways back from what was in the 100. 31 in, in 1850. Just the history of the owners then, um, as I said, Pat, uh, Patrick Hayes was the owner in 1850 and around that time. So he was survived by probably his son, Richard Hayes, who and he died on the 10th of February, 1901. And as I said before, our great-grandfather, who was Michael Dunphy, and he came from Balafasi in Glenmore, and he married uh, Mary Welsh. So he married into the mill. So Mary Welsh must have been, we're not sure about what her connection is, but she, she must have been connected with the Hayes family, that the mill is in in, um, in our ownership um, for five generations at this stage. So our brother, Ger was the last, I suppose, full-time custodian who lived there. We had all moved out and built houses in around. They were all still in Mullinavat. And um, unfortunately, Ger passed away in 2004. Um, but Ger had done a huge amount of work on the mill 
during, while he was there, you know, with painting walls and keeping the roofs in good repair and all that. So that has stood to the building over time. So, John, can you tell us a little bit more about the mill's layout currently? It's a four-storey building. There's the machinery floor, as they call it, on the, on the ground floor. Then you have the stone floor is on the first floor. And there's two storage floors then above that. And there's a kiln building, which um, was used to dry the corn. So the way the system works is uh, water is diverted from the river Blackwater. And our mill is about a mile below the village in Mulnavat on the, on the main Waterford, what used to be the main Waterford Dublin Road. So water is diverted from the Blackwater River via mill race, and that is diverted down onto what's known as a breast shot wheel. The flow of the water into the wheel is controlled by sluice gates, and that's what controls the speed of the mill. So you either lift up the gates if you want to make it go faster, or if there's more of a load on it, or um, leave the sluice gates down if you want to slow it down. So the wheel then, through a shaft, which goes in through the wall of the mill, it turns the internal machinery. So the first uh, wheel it turns is called the pit wheel. Now these wheels are huge, big wheels. They're about maybe five, six feet in diameter and made from cast iron. So they're very heavy pieces of equipment. The pit wheel then, which stands vertically inside the mill, it goes down into a pit and the top end goes up towards the ceiling of the first of the, of the ground floor. And that turns what's called a wallower. The pit wheel is, stands vertically and the wallower stands horizontally. So it's like a crown wheel and pinion. So then the pit wheel turns the great sport wheel, which in turn uh, rotates the, the stone wheels. And the stone wheels turn the millstones, which are on the first floor. In our mill, there was three grinding stones, and they're all still there. All the machinery in the mill is all intact. So the grinding stone, the bottom half of the grinding stone is stationary and then the top stone is known as a runner stone and that rotates so the way the grinding works is the um, the corn is fed down in towards the center of the stone into a hopper and uh, standing up in the center of the stone and rotating with it is what's called a damsel and and the damsel vibrates the hopper and it vibrates the corn into the down into the center of the stone and through f- uh, centrifugal force the corn is ground and fed out through out the, uh, until it reaches the outside of the stone and the paddle stops the, the corn from going around and then there's a casing around the stone and that drops the corn down into a chute where it can be either bagged if it's finished or maybe go back in an elevator if it has to be sieved or maybe reground. So the fineness of the corn is controlled by the closeness of the stone. So you can lift the stone up and down by means of a, a screw fr- from the ground floor which reduces or increases the distance between the, the stones. There's a kiln then as well, and that is used uh, to dry the corn. So the kiln building, there was a fire on the ground floor in in a like a pit type thing. And from there then, the building was constructed upwards and outwards into the four corners of the building by, by stepping the bricks out, out and up as it went. And that led onto um, the upper floor was where the corn was put out to dry on bricks similar, similar to terracotta type bricks, which um, were supported by uh, steel bars across the floor and and, um, and steel strips underneath, underneath the tiles. So the corn was put out on the, onto the floor and was dried by the fire below and maybe left dry for 24, 48 hours. And then it was ready for, um, for grinding. What is the function of the mill, John? I suppose the function of the mill was farmers from the local area, from Mulnavat and the local parishes of Kilmacow, 
Ballyhale and Hogginstown predominantly would have um, come to the mill to have corn ground, I suppose, primarily for animals, um, but possibly also for baking. Um, oats, barley and wheat were the main uh, grains which were ground in the mill, uh, but there was also a maize license uh, during the 1930s and um, record, records for all the for the grinding the maize had to be kept and that was under the Agricultural Products um, Cereals Act uh, 1933 to 1936. So records of all the transactions had to be kept in in a mill ledger um, and the oldest surviving mill ledger we have was began on the 15th of September 1869. So that book still survives to this day and I suppose just looking through the names in the book many of the farming families around the area still survive but Regrettably, a lot have, a lot of the families have died out. A big thank you to John Dunphy of Deer Park Mill there for telling us more about the history of the mill and indeed his family's connections to it. John will be back with us again next week to tell us more about those restoration works, the challenges he faced, the open day held recently and what the future holds for the mill. But now it's time for a break on the programme. I do hope you'll stay tuned though and join me again in part two when we'll be hearing from theatre producer, writer and director Gillian Grattan who will be telling us more about her new radio play production about the life and times of Lady Desert. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes. Looking Back in Time, the history show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltoch, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part two of tonight's KCLR History Show. Gillian Grattan is no stranger to the programme, nor is she a stranger to writing and producing historical theatre and radio plays, telling us the stories of some of Kilkenny's most infamous events and people. It'll come as no surprise then that Gillian has a new production in the works, this time a radio play titled The Countess, which tells the story of the life and times of one of Kilkenny's most well-known historical personalities, Lady Desert. The production, which does not yet have a broadcast date, can be heard here in the near future on KCLR as the final editing touches continue to be put in place. But to whet our appetite for the piece, I spoke to Gillian recently, who told me more about The Countess. Wednesday nights from six, this is KCLR's History Show. So Gillian, in a very general sense, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about The Countess? So, yeah, I did this play um, as part of the Decade of the Centenaries um, celebrations. So there was, um, for artists and uh, people who had with an interest in history, there was funding made available over the last few years to do with historical context of 100 years since, you know, the War of Independence and the Civil War. So this year, focused on 1923. So I focused actually on Lady Desert because I wanted to keep it sort of, well, it, I wanted, obviously, I have to be, Kilkenny based. So um, Lady Desert was someone I didn't really know much about. But what I did know was that um, Desert House had burned down in 1923. So that was kind of my kicking off point. I didn't have to be honest, I didn't know that much about her, but I spent a lot of time researching her between the British newspaper archives and the Irish newspaper archives. And 
in Rose House in the library and everything like that. So the play is essentially, it looks at her life, but her life from coming to Kilkenny and, and all the different things that she did around the city. It was a look at her. There's two characters in the play. There's Lady Desert, who was played by um, Susie Lamb, and then Jerry Cody. Sure, I'm sure everyone knows him in Kilkenny. He's a real, he, uh, well known in Kilkenny for his his theatre work. So he played a kind of a narrator, but um, and sort of like a he was giving the play context in terms of where we were in, in time, like exactly what year it was. So we used a lot of newspaper clippings and stuff to do that. So it looks at Lady Desert's life in Kilkenny from when she arrived here after getting married up to her death, I suppose. But she lived in Dublin and she died, but it was kind of all the different things she achieved here as well. So, Though this is a radio piece, this isn't the first time that you've performed the play together as a group publicly. Is that right? Yeah, so basically the fun, the funding that was available to us at the start was I researched it. So I spent a few months researching Lady Desert and then I put the play together based on my research. So I, I created a story with the two characters and it was all to do with her. So the outcome of that writing and research was a reading, uh, a, a staged reading of the piece in Desert Hall. So Mary Metzgel kindly provided the lovely hall upstairs um, I don't know if you've ever been in there, but it's really lovely. So Ossery Youth is there now at the minute. That's where they're based. So we rehearsed in Thomastown Community Centre for a couple of days. I did. I rehearsed with the two actors and then we did a day in Ossery in Desert Hall where we set up a kind of made a, like a little stage and a little set. And yeah, we had an audience come in, like people who were very interested in lo- local history and stuff came in. But we had a good we had a good few people in that night. And then one of the people who was in the audience that night was Regina. Patrick. She is the heritage officer in Kilkenny and she approached me then afterwards and asked me would I be interested in recording it for radio and of course I was going to absolutely because I've done um, a couple of radio plays with KCLR before. Both were to do with the decade of the centenaries as well. Um, The last one that just broadcast recently enough was Coolbon Women which was all about the Coolbon ambush but from a female perspective. So, and then we did a play about Woodstock. So, yeah, and there was fires in both of them. So I'm sure I'm always saying this, but it seems like all these historical plays that I've worked on have had a fire in them of some description. But um, yeah, so we went into the studio in KCLR and we spent a day recording there with Susie Lamb, who was obviously in the reading as well, and Jerry. So we had a day of recording. And it's in the edit, so it's in post-production at the minute. So I'm sure it'll be ready in the next few weeks, but um, whenever it's going to broadcast, not sure on dates or anything, but it's it's in the pipeline anyway. So there's another fire in this play. I presume this production, like your last, will have plenty of sound effects, atmos, music and so on. Oh, yeah. So basically, uh, Martin Bridgman, who I've worked with before on Cool Ball Women, he is doing all that side of things. So like, obviously we've discussed it and then we have some... Um, original music from a local band Burnchurch so we used their music before as well it's gorgeous it's really well suited to the gives this kind of old Irish atmosphere so it's actually perfect for the plays that we use it in so yeah so Martin's doing all the sound effects and all that kind of stuff so yeah fires as such I'm not I suppose in in this case it's more she's describing the fire she wasn't there whereas in the previous play Cool Bond Women uh, Florence Draper was actually there when the fire was taking place so we were really able to 
get into that a bit more. And this is more like for this particular play, the Countester kind of talking about what happened and more to do with the reason why they think it happened. And it was to do with the fact that she was a senator, you know, after the Free State. So she took a place on the Senate and she was probably possibly warned off as many were at the time. But she still took her place. She was very proud to be a senator. But they think that possibly this is the reason why the house was burnt down. But she wasn't living there at the time. So the other uh, Lord, another Lord Desert was there at that time. But anyway, it was burnt down. So it was completely burnt out. And so a lot of stuff was destroyed as well. So where did the idea come from to write and produce a play on Lady Desert? Because um, I wanted to look at a woman who had some significance to Kilkenny. So I just started digging around. I know she probably seems like an obvious choice when you actually look around Kilkenny and see all the things that she did. But I didn't know any of this stuff. I'm So maybe that's just me as an L blow in, John. But I did not know she was, like she, the the, the woolen mills and this Kilkenny, um, the furniture, she had, she had a furniture like uh, factory down there near Talbot's interest. Talbot's interest also something she was involved in, like the development of that. And that's a gorgeous area of Kilkenny. I'm sure you've seen it. But um, so she was involved in the theatre. She was involved in a lot. Of, she was involved in the opening of the Carnegie Library. Robert Carnegie, who was this like philanthropist who wants to like, you know, people to develop literary kind of skills and stuff. So the Carnegie Library was something she was involved in as well. The theatre. The handball alley. I know handball is huge in Kilkenny and stuff. So, she ha- if you look around, like I suppose, um, you see a lot of her footprint in in the area. You know, it sounds as though you've done a lot of research on Lady Desert already in preparation for the writing of this play. Was this a difficult process? How long did it take you? Describe that process to us. Well. First thing I did was somebody gave me a book about the Desert family. I think it was written by a guy called Gabriel Murray. Gabriel Murray, I maybe don't know if you know that book. Also, I read like Owen Swithin Welsh had written a book, Kilkenny and Times of Revolution. Like this kind of it looks at the whole time period, which and it's such a great book. If anyone is like really into history, like Kilkenny, I would highly recommend that book. I actually met him when I was doing research for the previous play. Um, but yeah, so I suppose for anyone who's doing historical research, obviously books, library, but the the newspaper archives are amazing. Like the stuff that you get in there is unbelievable. And like, so you just put in like, you know, keywords, key years, like, so, I mean, so much information pops up. So my, the play, like the Lady Desert's play, for example, what we, what I found out on the research was her husband had been married before and his his previous his ex wife I suppose, she had been having an affair with this actor in England called Charles Sugden. So I didn't know any of this stuff. Obviously, it's I know it sounds like real um red top newspaper kind of stuff, but these are the kind of stuff that these are the kind of things that were in the newspaper, like these kind of articles, and then the whole court transcript was in there. So we used bits of that. So it was just like establishing, like the kind of kicking off point where the story starts, where it's like she's going to now become the next lady desert so we started her off as a, a very young girl she came from a very rich background bishop Himes, kind of like they were super billionaire like i mean there's so much information on that family alone um which i didn't really put into the play because i was focusing on one particular aspect like they were bankers her father was res- responsible for setting up of banks in europe and stuff so they were 
they were in charge a few quid, John, you know. So, but um, like for, I would say for anyone doing historical research, just get into those newspaper archives because they're an amazing resource, really, really good. And also like heritage websites like Dukas.ie have loads of nice little stories as well written by like there's a school kids section where you can read all these kind of stories written by children of that time and stuff. So just, just lots of stuff online. There's absolutely loads. Those newspaper archives are fantastic, aren't they? I've used them a lot myself for research purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. And we were just uh, sorry. I was just saying how how time has in some aspects not really changed because um, we were looking at um, like these adverts from 1923 that were in the papers in the Kilkenny people. And there was stuff like for um, for beauty tips. And there was stuff in there was saying like constipation is uh, makes you old and like it does not help with the aging process. Like the weirdest ads, but all these beauty products about how to keep your skin younger looking. It's like, oh, wow, this stuff just has not changed at all. These problems, these these issues, as we like to call them, they're, they're still there. We still haven't found the key to staying young forever. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. <laughs> I've asked you this before when you've written and produced previous radio plays for KCLR, but accurate representation of historical events is so important, isn't it? Was there added pressure on a project of this nature to ensure that everything you were writing was historically accurate? Yeah, so I suppose it's, it is challenging and I suppose maybe there's always going to be someone who's thinking, that's not right. Um, but like I would say, actually not so much for this play, but maybe for the previous one, the the one about Cool Bond, I have to be so careful with that because, um, obviously, I'm reading newspaper articles. They may have a quite like a little angle on there too. But then I spoke to people, maybe family members and stuff. So I just wanted to tell the story. Obviously, you're dramatizing the story slightly. You you have to do that, but you're kind of, you know. You just have to be careful because there are people's relations or, or, you know, there are there are family connections there. So in order to, you have to be respectful of that. Like I definitely went and asked permission for all that before I did it, you know, like with the last play. Not so much this one, but it was okay. I think she's been gone for a while. So, um, yeah. Finally, Gillian, though we don't know the date of the broadcast as of yet, as it's still in the editing process, could you give our listeners your best pitch as to why they should listen to this play when it gets broadcast? If you want to learn something about Lady Desert, I would listen to the play because there's definitely things in there that I did not know before myself. I mean, maybe Kilkenny people know all this stuff already, but her story is really interesting. She was the first Jewish woman in the world to be on any Senate anywhere in the whole world. She's just a very interesting woman. And the one thing that I did find out was that I found super interesting was her husband, when he died, he was buried over in Cornwall. And she's also buried there in Falmouth Cemetery, which is in Cornwall. But they call her the Weeping Widow over there. And I didn't know any of that because she used to come and visit his grave and like weep at the grave and stuff. So they, they actually, they have a diff- totally different context in relation to Lady Desert. Their context to her is this woman who lost her husband. He died on the on on a, on a yacht in Falmouth Bay. And so that's why he was buried there. And... Yeah, so sorry. My selling point is Lady Desert is has such has actually had such a huge impact on Kilkenny, like uh, culturally, and just there's so much there's so much about her to see in Kilkenny that I think people should listen and maybe 
it sounds like I'm saying you must learn something. She's just a very interesting uh, lady. And I, I think as as well as the actors, like Susie Lamb is such a great actor, as is Jerry, and their performances are really good, uh, really excellent. So just in terms of performance alone, I would tune in. And the writing is all right, too. And a lot of work went into it, John. So, you know. Well, uh, definitely people should tune in for that one. A big thank you once again to Gillian Grattan there for telling us more about her upcoming radio play, The Countess, telling us more about the life of Kilkenny's Lady Desert. Do keep your ears to the ground as that play will be broadcast in the very near future to hear on KCLR. And when we do have a broadcast date, we'll be sure to let you know here on The History Show. Time now, though, for another ad break on the programme, but do stay with me because after that, we'll be hearing from Thomastown's Joe Doyle about the history and inscriptions at the medieval graveyard known locally as Thompel Thagon. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltox, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part three of tonight's KCLR History Show. Now we're headed out to the townland of Grenon in Thomastown. It's the home to Thompel Tagon, a medieval graveyard on the west hill above the Nore Valley on the main access route to the castle of Grenon. Thomastown native Joe Doyle has carried out extensive research on the graveyard, the headstones and the inscriptions written on each of them. In this, the first of two parts, Joe explains more to us about the history of Thompel Tagon as well as some of the inscriptions that tell very interesting stories about those who have gone on before us. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. Temple Tagon is um, in Grenon Townland in Thomastown. And people uh, mightn't be quite sure, people from outside Thomastown mightn't be quite sure where it is. But anyone who's been at the, the hurling grounds in Thomastown uh, in Grenon, uh, as you pass down the, the laneway towards the hurling field, uh, it's in there on the left. And it's regarded as an early Celtic uh, Christian site. Uh, the, the saint is take on and very little is known about him and we are uh, told by we'll say the diocesan historian William Carrigan Canon William Carrigan that uh, he belonged to the Edavon tribe which was centred in the Thomastown area and his feast day is given as the 13th of July now what remains of the temple or the church itself uh, the the eastern end of the ruin is uh, probably the most impressive because uh, there there's a, um, a gothic window and uh, it's still in pretty good repair has survived uh, for a long long time well of course the um, uh, the Gothic window, of course, wouldn't be from the, the early Celtic church at all, but uh, from a later building during Norman times. And the ruins uh, measure roughly about, uh, I suppose, 11 metres long and maybe four to five metres in width. So it was a pretty small church. Now, it is described as the, the parish church for Grenon. And again, if you're familiar with the area uh, near the Harling Pitch, uh, there is the ruins of Grenon Castle. And uh, that would have been the, the castle, the manor house of uh, Thomas Fitzanthony, who founded the town of Thomastown 
uh, in the late 1100s. And uh, as I said, uh, Canon Carrigan tells us very little. And they, 60 years before Carrigan's history, uh, John O'Donovan, the uh, Irish scholar who was attached to the Ordnance Survey, uh, he has, uh, well, doesn't really give us much more information on it. And in his report in October 1839, he wrote, uh, there is a ruined old church in the townland of Grenon called Temple Teichon. And uh, he gives the measurements there as 35 feet, I said roughly 11 metres by 15 feet. So you could say somewhere in the, the region of four to five metres. And the tradition, he says, that was that this church which appears to be a modern one, belonged formerly to the castle of Grenon, which stands near it on the bank of the Nor. The castle appears to have been very large and a respectable one, but he said it could not be examined when we were at Thomastown being completely surrounded by water. Now, that's not an unusual thing. It's quite close to the river. And uh, when it floods, it normally the flood water comes in under the hill between the temple and the castle. So obviously in October 1839, the river was in flood. Now, I did say at the start there that uh, Temple Take On uh, would have been an early Celtic church. Uh, if you were looking at it from the Inestig Road at the viewing point for Grenon Castle, you're looking across the river to the castle, then up the hill to the temple. You will notice that the boundary wall is certainly not square or oblong, but tends to be rounded. And this sort of rounded feature would be something you would associate with a Celtic church. Moving on then, uh, Willie Pillsworth, who brought out uh, a local history in 1953. Again, he had very little to add to our knowledge, but uh, he said, at the top of the mall, we turned down a lane to the left and a short distance down this lane, we noticed a small ruined church. This uh, temple Teichon, generally known as the temple, where one of the early Celtic saints erected his church. And he said, it appears to be a Norman reconstruction, what survives at the moment, a Norman reconstruction of the original Celtic building. And certainly the charming little east window with its cut stone mullions is hardly earlier, he said, than the 14th century. He refers also to the laneway running from the top of the mall, uh, which has now been widened, of course, uh, because it, it, when the Castle Avenue scheme of housing was built there, the lane had to be widened. And um, he said, in the time he was writing, it was known locally as the Temple Boshin. And of course, Boshin is a small road uh, and in standard Irish, it would be Boreen. But uh, in one of the features of uh, Kilkenny Irish was that where you had a slender R, the, the you know, A-I-R, I for the N, that the the R became, uh, was given a sort of a Z sound. And so that's where we get Boshin. There's very little more uh, to be said uh, about the building itself, but the surrounding graveyard is quite interesting and there are only i think about nine inscriptions nine stones with inscriptions and when i noted them here in the 1980s they ranged from a wall plaque to altar and chest tombs the tombs and to marker stones and there was a later survey done by a lady called mary castellan and uh, bernie kerwin bernie's from Dane's fort in 2015 and for the most part they confirmed what i had found with some corrections and some additions 
But the following, if I go through it, is the order in which Mary and Bernie have them listed. And where I have a, a little bit of additional information on the families, I'll add it in. Now, the first uh, tomb that they note, the, the inscription reads, uh, James S. Blake of Balnamona, County Kilkenny, who died 16th of September, 1873, aged 56 years, erected by Cornelia, his wife and also Isadora Blake, born June 16th, 1854, died May 1856. Now, the Blake family of Balnamona, which Balnamona is in Thomastown Parish, lived in the house now occupied by Robin and Mary Moss. And John Blake of that family became prominent in business and civic affairs in Waterford in the mid-19th century and was mayor of Waterford at the time of the controversy over the establishment of the district model school there. At the time, uh, Archbishop Cullen of Dublin was marshalling opposition to the proposed network of model schools, principally on the grounds that they were multi-denominational and that they were totally under the control of the commissioners of national education. Now, despite growing Roman Catholic opposition, commissioners and a number of Waterford notables held firm. And at the opening of the school in 1855, Mayor Blake could feel justified in his speech to hold out the hope that Waterford District Model School would play an important part in ridding society of its uh, sectarian character. I remember sometime in the early 1970s, a member of this family calling on my father, looking for information about the Blakes in this area. Uh, my father was able to direct them to the family tombs in the in the temple. Uh, but my father also made contact with a family living in Balnamona, the Balnamona area, who didn't wish to meet with the visitor because the Blakes, they said, were not remembered as good landlords. A big thank you once again there to Joe Doyle there for his explanation as to the history, background and inscriptions of Thompel Tagon. Joe will be back with us next week for part two of that very interesting chat. Time for our final break of the evening now on the programme. I'll talk to you shortly. The History Show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltocht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. That's all for this evening's programme. Thank you very much for listening. Owen Carey is up next with Fully Loaded, so do stay tuned for that. But I'll be back here next Wednesday after the 6 o'clock news when we'll do it all over again. Don't forget, you can check out the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or on the KCLR app. But I'll talk to you again next week. The History Show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltocht, Sport and Media.